This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, would you open them please to Daniel 3. Uh, Daniel 3, here's the story. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. They have conquered Jerusalem. They have hauled the people, God's people, into exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar creates, makes this 90-foot by 9-foot edifice, statue, nondescript, gathers people, a whole assortment of people in his kingdom to a dedication service. He puts together an orchestra, and he tells everybody that's gathered before this statue that as soon as they hear the orchestra play, they need to bow down and worship this thing. Among those who have been summoned are Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At the sound of the music, they refuse to bow the knee. They're ratted out. They're brought before Nebuchadnezzar and boldly hold their ground until Nebuchadnezzar's rage can't take it anymore, and he throws them into a fiery furnace. They're, of course, miraculously delivered from that, and that leads to quite a change in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and his heart. That is the story. Now, there are numerous ways to preach most texts of Scripture, particularly narrative texts. The angle the sermon takes depends on which character we identify with or which way we preach, which angle we preach the sermon from. So in a story like this, we could preach it from the perspective of Daniel's three friends. And if we did, it's a story about enduring persecution as Christians. It's a, it's a reality check that as exiles, we will face, you will face enormous pressure to bow the knee to an idea or a concept, a way of life, a person that would violate our love for and our obedience to Christ. And the intensely difficult question that comes bounding back to us is this, when faced with the real potential of death, what will you do? There are Christians all over the world today, right now, at this hour, who are facing death as a result of their refusal to recant their faith in Christ. And so the encouragement in this story to believers in that situation is that Jesus goes with us through the fiery trials. There was a fourth person in the furnace. So this story preaches that way very easily. But there are other ways to preach it. Rather than than viewing this story from the perspective of the three friends, we're going to view this story from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar. Specifically, what does Nebuchadnezzar teach us about us? I want to invite you. The problem is in preaching it from the perspective of the three friends, when you're not undergoing persecution is that you end up getting lots of fingers being pointed out there at those you think are or may be Nebuchadnezzars. But we're going to look at this very differently. Rather than looking at all the Nebuchadnezzars out there, we're going to look at the Nebuchadnezzar inside each of us. We're going to discover we're not that different. The heart motivations operating inside Nebuchadnezzar are the same that operate within each one of us. The dynamics that create totalitarian states around the globe are actually the same dynamics exerting their influence within each of us. 
And the bottom line is that our idolatry can create personalized mini totalitarian states. So here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the communal pressure of idolatry and the expulsive power of a new affection. The communal pressure of idolatry and the expulsive power of a new affection. Nebuchadnezzar makes this edifice 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. It had to have been impressive. This is his great feat. This is his brainchild. This is his great act. He's the designer. He's the builder. He assembles this dedication service where the whole range of civil service employees are required to attend. Seven different classes of officials are named there, likely in order of ranking. And this dedication service was to be a test of their loyalty to him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar already had a reputation for being a nasty guy. Jeremiah 29 tells us that he, at this point, has already burned two men to death by the name of Zedekiah and Ahab. So, so balking at the king's demand would be unwise. He's, he's not a man. He's demonstrated himself not to be a man to tr- be trifled with. He assembles an orchestra, the ragtime band, if you will, strikes up the music. Now, this, man, this, this gathering was not just mandatory. This is going to be a festive celebration, He wants everybody gathered there to give their all in celebration of this thing that he's created. Veneration given to the statue is veneration given to the creator. The idol and the idol maker become one. Now every human character in the Bible in some way is there to hold up a mirror to ourselves. Every human character in the Bible in some way is there to hold up a mirror so that we get a good look at us. They show us ourselves. The impulse actuated within Nebuchadnezzar is an impulse present within each of us. We're prone to constructing idols and demanding that others celebrate those. And so we see that idolatry is not just a private, uh, invisible struggle that we all contend with. The story is showing us the impact that our personal idols have on the various communities and circles we belong to. Because Nebuchadnezzar is showing us our personal idolatry often doesn't remain personal. It leaks. It leaks into our communities, into our circles. And we end up making demands that other people celebrate what we celebrate. Our personal idols make demands that others give of their time and their energy and affection to our creations. Now, as we've seen repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, uh, Uh, Idolatry doesn't have to be a physical object. Remember the charge that Ezekiel leveled against the elders of Israel. He said to them that they've set up idols in their hearts, which means idolatry is a sophisticated idea that involves psychological, sociological, emotional aspects. Today, our monuments tend not to be 90-foot edifices made of gold. Our monuments tend to be metaphorical, but they lead to the same place. We make demands that others celebrate whatever those may be. But there's more here. We not only demand that others celebrate our monuments, we demonize those who don't. Daniel's three friends refused to worship the king's creation. And then we read this in verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. This word denounced is a graphic term meaning ate the pieces of. They Literally, they chewed them out. Might be the best English idiom. And the hostility culminates with Nebuchadnezzar's furious rage manifesting itself in the three young men being thrown into the furnace. See, when other people don't celebrate our idols, we demonize them. 
One of the best ways to identify your personal idols, and we all have them, is to look at who or what you quietly condemn in your heart. Whom or what do you demonize? For example, a woman who looks at obese people with judgment in her heart is likely idolizing the gods of fitness, beauty, discipline, and self-control. A man who looks down his nose on minimum wage workers is likely idolizing the gods of achievement and professional advancement. Or listen to Beth's story. Beth is a middle-aged, middle-class housewife with three kids and a husband who works in construction. She drives a used minivan, lives in an old three-bedroom ranch, attends a large evangelical church, is very much devoted to God. She reads her Bible every day. She prays diligently. She serves at the homeless shelter. Her friends admire her. Her pastor adores her. On the outside, she looks squeaky clean. The problem? Every Sunday, she falls into the same pattern. She sees Christians pulling up to church in fancy cars, wearing fancy clothes, driving home to fancy homes, and she condemns them. To Beth... Their money is a sign of spiritual immaturity. She believes they're all caught up in in lives of materialism and greed and are certainly less Christian than she is. She smiles at them when they walk by a church, but she chastises them in her heart. Although she'll never admit it, they're her enemies, and in her mind, they're God's enemies too. Beth is idolizing poverty and demonizing money and those who have it. When other people don't celebrate what we celebrate, our hearts can degenerate into demonizing them. Idolatry and demonizing are counterparts. Whom or what do you quietly condemn in your heart? Now this story makes the connection between personal idolatry and communal pressure transparent. This this edifice that Nebuchadnezzar has built is his idea. This is his creation. Nobody else suggested it to him. He came up with it all by himself. He's the one who gathers the people. He's the one who strikes up the band. But notice something here. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar's personal idolatry eventually leads to a societal injustice. Do you see it? His personal idolatry leads to a mini-genocide attempt. Personal idolatry can be the spark that starts the communal wildfire of injustice. Hitler was not all that dissimilar. His personal idolatry of national and ethnic pride, combined with fortuitous timing, combined with opportunity, combined with a charismatic personality, all led to adopting Nebuchadnezzar's evil habit of putting human beings in ovens. Personal idolatry tends not to stay private. It leaks. It tends to be the spark that starts the communal wildfire of society's ills. And so the text is an invitation to reflect. Whom or what do I quietly condemn in my heart? Whom or what am I demonizing? We have more in common with people like Beth, Hitler, and Nebuchadnezzar than we would like to admit. Second, the expulsive power of a new affection. 
the author through repetition draws attention to the ferocity of Nebuchadnezzar's rage, which is also a sign of idolatry. Strong emotion usually means idolatry, unless it's rooted in a righteous love. So the author's drawing attention to Nebuchadnezzar's rage. It's, it's repeated throughout. It's seen the fact that he heats this furnace seven times hotter than it normally is. It's so hot it devours the soldiers who were instructed to throw Daniel's three friends into it. And then we read this. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? <laughs> hey guys, didn't we throw three in there? They replied, certainly, your majesty. Sounds very robotic. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses burned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Scholars differ on the nature of the exact change that happens in Nebuchadnezzar, but they all agree something radical has happened here. A radical change has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And what did it take for that to happen? Well, the, the instrument of change in his life was not a debate over the substance of his idol. It wasn't a persuasive conversation that the three had with him in order to try to convince him to be a little bit more tolerant. It wasn't a political or a military coup attempt on the part of the three friends. No, what, what it took for Nebuchadnezzar to experience this radical change was witnessing a miraculous deliverance through fire. It's the plain meaning of the text. What should have destroyed failed to. What should have brought death didn't. And we, when he set eyes on this confounding miracle, everything changed for him. The route to change for us happens the same way. It happens the same way. Now, numerous places throughout Scripture, God's wrath is portrayed as fire. There's dozens of places where this happens. I only have time to show you one. Jeremiah 4.4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. Now, on the cross, Jesus went through the fire of God's wrath. He went through the fire of God's justice, heated to a temperature never before experienced by another human being. But three days later, he came walking out of the furnace. God raised him from the dead. He performed a miraculous deliverance through fire. And after Jesus came walking out of the tomb, he said this to his disciples in John 20, verse 29, because you have seen me, what? You believe just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Nebuchadnezzar, witnessing this miraculous deliverance was the catalyst of their belief. 
That's why the apostle says, when I preach, I preach Jesus and him crucified. There's no other catalyst to change. Now you look at that and you say, well, okay, I didn't see Jesus like the disciples did. Well, let me read the whole verse. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The risen Christ is still the object of their faith. The risen Christ is still the one that's put before them. See, Nebuchadnezzar's life changed the moment he saw evidence of a God superior to the one made in his own image. He was freed from his personal idolatry when the reigning affection in his heart was transferred from himself to the living God. In other words, what Nebuchadnezzar experienced was the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection, which is a sermon title preached by Thomas Chalmers, a 19th century Scottish minister. You can find it online. I would encourage you to read it. The expulsive power of a new affection. In his sermon to his congregation, this is what he said. If the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. You got that? Let me illustrate. Uh, Parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, anybody who has interacted with an infant Do you remember the time when your infant or the one you were looking over started to play with something they should have not been playing with? If you've never experienced that, I would like to meet your child. (laughs) What did you do? Let me change the question. What is the worst way to separate an infant from something they shouldn't be playing with? I'll tell you because I learned from experience. Walking up to them and ripping it out of their hands is the worst way to address that problem. What do you have to do instead? You have to present them with an alternative. Yes? We've all learned that. We have all learned that. You have to present them with an attractive substitute. Present to their senses something even better. That causes them to loosen their grip on the thing that isn't good for them. That's what Chalmers is saying. That's what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That's what's happened in every believer's heart from the dawn of time. Nebuchadnezzar was separated from his personal idolatry when he was presented with something far superior to what currently had his affection. See, your heart was made for love. It naturally attaches itself in love to some object. What it attaches itself in love to determines the kind of person you'll be. What you love the most radically determines how you behave. Let's go back to Beth. Remember her? She idolized poverty. She attached her heart in love to poverty. Why? 
Well, she probably construed holiness with poverty, spiritual performance with poverty, the healthy Christian life with poverty. In other words, her poverty and demonizing money and those who have it made her feel significant. It set her apart. It gave her distinction. So do you see that underneath her heart's attachment to the love of poverty is ultimately love for personal distinction? Pride is at the root of all idolatry. All idolatry works this way. In the end, idolatry is about beholding a great self. We are freed from that, not by an act of willpower. We are freed from that when our hearts set their gaze on an object of exceedingly greater worth and excellence. Time and again, the scriptures insist that object of exceedingly greater worth and excellence is Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 3 Paul gives it to us very plainly. He says, and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we set our gaze on the glory of the Lord, the risen Christ, we are being transformed into his image. That is the expulsive power of a new affection. See, what's wrong with our world can be traced back to personal idolatry. In every case, every case, people are freed from personal idolatry through the expulsive power of a new affection, the exceedingly greater worth and excellency of Jesus Christ. Spring is here and you probably don't want to hear about fall, but I'll use this imagery to uh, conclude our time this morning. Most trees drop their leaves in the fall. It's not earth shattering, but there is at least one tree that does not. The beech tree. If you walk through the woods in the dead of winter, you may notice this. Beech trees hang on to their leaves until spring. And the old leaves don't fall off. They are pushed off by the new leaf bud. It's the growth of a new leaf that jettisons the old leaf. It's remarkable to be how God has implanted in his creation imagery to help us understand the expulsive power of a new affection. An old affection cannot just be ripped out of our hands. It has to be expelled by the growth of a new affection. That's why our vision here is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. We hold up the beauty and the excellency of Christ. And we watch what happens after that. Let's pray. Gracious God, make us aware of our personal idolatries. Most of the time we aren't aware of them. and We need your word and spirit to illuminate those dark corners of our existence. Show us how our personal idolatries are never a purely private matter, but impact the various circles of belonging we have. The astonishingly beautiful life Jesus lived, his grotesque death and triumphant resurrection need to be placed in front of every person's senses. As we behold the glory of this, we're changed. And start with us, I pray, God. I pray for renewed passion to behold the glory of Christ. 
Use us as instruments to present the excellency and worthiness of Christ to those who are attached in love to some lesser object. As this happens, may you work powerfully to transform us as individuals and through us the various communities and circles of belonging that we have. For your glory, we pray these things. Amen.